Good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. Good to have you tune in today. Listen, just so that you're aware, tomorrow, Monday morning, we will open up our registration for those who want to worship with us in person next Sunday at the 909 or the 1111 gathering. The worship is simple, the people are real, and the message is as live as it gets. So, Or you can sit back, as you're doing right now, in the comfort of your own home with a coffee in hand and enjoy today as you're doing right now. Either way, it's all up to you. So here we are in our series of Failing Faith. And um, several years ago, back in, it was like 1990, uh, Barbara Walters interviewed General Norman Schwarzkopf. Now that name is a mouthful in itself, but he was the one-time commander of Operation Desert Storm. That was that war that went on in the Persian Gulf. And uh, I stumbled across this interview, and I want you to watch it. Thank you. And uh, that's Christian. Christian. Your dad? You know, he passed away in 1958. Your father was a major general. Mm-hmm. Do you think about him at all now? Yeah, I probably, I probably thought about him more since I've been over here than I, than I have in many, many years. I mean, many times I've just thought that, you know, if he was looking at me now, you know, I, I knew he'd be proud. You know, there are certain questions I ask you, like about your father. And the tears come to your eyes. I didn't know it showed. The old picture of generals. Generals don't cry. Generals don't get tears in their eyes. Sure they do. They just didn't admit it? Oh, I think they admitted it. Uh, Grant, after Shiloh, went back and cried. Uh, Sherman went back and cried. I mean, these, the, and these are the tough old guys. Lee cried uh, at the loss of human life, at, at the... Uh, uh, the pressures that were brought to bear. Uh, Lincoln cried. Uh, I don't th- and, and and frankly, any man that doesn't cry scares me a little bit. I I don't think I would like a man who was incapable of 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 of, of enough emotion to to get tears in his eyes every now and then. I that that type of person scares me. That's not a human being. Here is a soldier who was trained to be tough a man who's probably seen more death and destruction than most of us will ever see, and yet he doesn't apologize for his tears. Now, many of us aren't so much afraid of tears as we are ashamed of tears, right? You know, we can apologize for laughter, we can apologize for anger or even apathy, but when it comes to tears, it's almost as if we are running, you know, to hide so that nobody sees us, right? Uh, we're ashamed of our tears. And again, I, I know because I, I speak from experience. And maybe it's because of the steady stream of messages throughout our culture that have been passed down the lines like, you know, stop crying or shake it off. Only babies cry or big boys, big girls, they don't cry, right? Only the weak weep, right? And so what happens is that crying, especially when others see it, it makes us feel vulnerable. It makes us at times feel cut off and even alone. Uh, A poet by the name of Ella Wolcock, she wrote this. She said, laugh and the world laughs with you. Weep and you weep alone. Now, I'm not sure why we are ashamed to cry. But one thing I'm sure of, uh, it's actually not healthy for us to stifle our fears. And someone once said that one of the secret pathways to happiness 
is having a heart that stays tender enough just simply for tears. I thought that's just a profound saying. So I'm thinking about this life lesson and uh, I'm reminded of being in the basement of um, my ancestral home, my birthplace. And uh, as a preteen, I grew up reading a series of books called Peanuts. Now, of course, it was written by Charles Schultz. Um, He wrote about this boy named Charlie Brown, of course, his dog Snoopy, and this whole cast of friends. And I had all these comic books, and it was like, it was my escape. And, you know, I loved reading Schultz because he had this uncanny way to relate a sea of emotion and just a, a cup of dialogue. Like, it was so powerful. And one of the ways he accomplished this was through the use of these common and yet memorable phrases. And one such phrase that is frequently on the lips of the characters, whether it's Lucy or Charlie Brown or whoever, is the phrase, good grief, right? And so this week, as I reflected upon the times I've used this phrase, oh, good grief, right? How many times? I had to ask myself, could there be such things as good grief? See, normally we associate grief with bad news and behaviors, and we grieve at the devastation of tsunamis and earthquakes, or we grieve over abuse and deception. We grieve over famine, starvation, isolation. We grieve over terrorist attacks and loved ones dying from a number of various illnesses. And so surely in the light of such awful circumstances, no one would ever be inclined to speak of grief as a good thing. And thus, uh, at first look, the phrase appears to be an oxymoron, right? Good grief, is that's an oxymoron. There, there couldn't be anything good about grief, for to experience grief is to have something unwanted or unexpected happen. And yet, we see that a biblical understanding of grief would indeed cause one to view it as good. And so therefore may I present to you this morning that good grief could be called one of the glorious paradoxes of Scripture. See, the Bible tells us that God makes use of grief in this life for His glorious purposes and our good. Think about it. Now, nobody cheerfully is inviting grief. Hey, grief, come, come, come. No, the Bible tells us on several accounts that grief in the life of the Christian can be a good thing, But for starters, its grief is good when it's over sin. Psalms 51, For I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. Against you, only you, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justify when you judge. Second, grief is good when it leads us to repentance. 2 Corinthians says, And yet now I... I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and you were so not harmed in any way by us. And then there's a particular interest for me, is that grief is good when it awakens us. It awakens in us our longings for heaven and the final consummation where Jesus promises to make all things new. Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven 
from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write these down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And so here, according to Revelation 2, 4, grief will be revealed for what it is, which is a former thing. When we look at Scripture, we see that grief belongs to the land of sin. When Adam and Eve, and uh, even in the world in which they were created, they, they knew not sin at that very beginning. They knew not grief, and yet... Since the entry of sin into the world, not only have all experienced sin because of Adam, according to Romans 5, but all have experienced the grief that sin brings. So wherever sin is, grief eventually, inevitably, and soon will follow us. None, not even God, is immune to the grief caused by sin. Think about it this way. Sin grieves God the Father. You could read that in Genesis 6, 5 to 6. Sin grieves God the Son. We read that in Mark 3, verse 5. Sin grieves the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 4, 30. Sin grieves human beings created in the image of God, Romans chapter 7. And sin grieves a world created to reflect God's glory, again, Romans chapter 8. And so the longing of the world, the, the, the longing of our hearts is for this removal of grief. Can I get an amen? The desire to eliminate grief is common to all humankind. And yet we live in this grief-riddled world because we live in a sin-stricken world. So in light of this reality, what should be the Christian's manner of dealing with grief and Placing it in its proper perspective. How do we do it? I personally will never forget the night my father died. He had become so ill that we had to take him to the hospital. And my dad's cancer returned. And now his body was literally in the process of shutting down. I was by his bedside for almost a week. And I just, just never wanted dad to be alone. And as I sat there, I watched my father's body slowly shut down. And I remember very clearly the last breath that he took. It was almost like I found myself trying to breathe for him. And then it stopped. My dad had a do not resuscitate order. So I waited for what seemed like an hour, but in reality was probably only a minute. And then I called the nurse to come and to confirm indeed that he had past and then it was like right after that it, it came a series of phone calls to the family members right and and, and honest only two words actually were able to come out of my mouth and those two words were he's gone and what i realized that even if you expect it death still comes as a shock it was only in the days to come that the grief began to be expressed. 
And there was grief over so many things. And, and again, when it comes to grief, it's so complicated, as many of you know. My father had died. We knew he would die. But to be honest with you, the way that he did die was very hard for me to take. And when we experience a loss in our lives, we have to go on living. And we usually experience different types of emotions, you know, in that grief. It could be anger, it could be love, it could be fear, it could be hope, it could be insecurity, it could be abandonment. Like there's all these different things that come through. You name it, we experience it in grief. And we all have our losses. As a matter of fact, our losses come in many different forms. Maybe it comes in the form of a separation or a divorce or the children leaving home or uh, abuse or crime or moving or conflict or job change or retirement or aging or disappointment, sickness, death. It, it comes in many different forms. And these are all experiences where we feel real grief. And all our strong emotions rise up in us and they flow over us. Like the deep waters that Isaiah talks about that we are walking through. And when we wonder, you know, if we start to cry, will that ever stop? And so many of us just hold on to that. Or is it simply this grief going to come and hit us like a tidal wave and overwhelm us? Some of us hold back. We hide our grief because we imagine that once, you know, if we really allow ourselves to feel it, we won't be able to bear it. And you know what? Many people have hidden their grief for years and it gnaws away at them on the inside, right? But eventually it does come to surface. It, it could come two months later, five years later, 20 years later. But eventually what happens is that grief actually catches up to us. And we know that thing could and did happen and there's maybe nothing that you could ever do about it, but that grief still manifests itself through us. Now I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 11 in your Bible. And again, it's a very revealing story about real people who grieve and cry and become angry because someone they dearly loved has died. Now in all this, there are elements of hope and intimacy with, with God and deep faith. I need to say that as well. But let's jump right into the story. Now a man named Lazarus was sick and he was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. And so the sisters, they sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one that you love is sick. Lord, your bro is sick. When Jesus heard this, so when the messenger came and let Jesus know that Lazarus was sick, Jesus said, this sickness will not end. No, it's for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to the disciples, hey guys, let's go back to Judea. So here we have Mary and Martha. They sent for Jesus to what? Help their sick brother. And Jesus doesn't rush to Bethany to sit at his bedside. In fact, Jesus doesn't show up at all while Lazarus was dying. And by the time Jesus finally arrived, Lazarus' body had already been buried. It was a customary 30-day period of mourning prescribed by Hebrew law. It's now well into its fifth day, fourth, fifth day. He's into it. 
And so you got to go, why is Jesus arriving late? Why didn't he allow his dear friends emo- why did he allow his dear friends emotions to be tried to the breaking point? And it's interesting because the book of John is the only place we find this story and it doesn't give us really a clear answer. What the text does tell us explicitly is that Martha went to meet Jesus as he approached the outskirts of Bethany. You know, I try to picture this in my mind, you know, just somebody going out to meet Jesus. But she's broken. And you'll notice that she ran out and she greeted Jesus. But she greeted him with all the grief and anger and love of a close friend in crisis. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, and you need to notice that she responds now, very interesting, she just did respond, and she responds again with statements of faith. I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Again, statement of faith, yes, Lord. I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. And after she had said that, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher's here, and he's asking for you. And when Mary heard this, she got up quickly. She went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was at the same place where Martha met him. So obviously, something stopped him there. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her supposing that she was going to the tomb to mourn there. And when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and he said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You know, it's interesting because now Mary brought her own mixture of grief and pain to meet Jesus. And what I find very interesting is that both Mary and Martha blame Jesus as they embrace him sobbing if he had been here if only if he had been here our brother wouldn't have died scripture says that when jesus saw her weeping and the jews who had come along with her were also weeping he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled in other words jesus truly felt their anger and their pain where have you laid him he asked come and see my lord they replied Jesus wept. The shortest verse in the Bible contains some of the richest theology for reflection. Jesus wept. He loved them. So it was natural for a human, that that human side of him to weep and weep with them and for them. And as the procession of the family and friends and acquaintances walked to the cave where Lazarus was buried, they saw Jesus, they saw the Messiah weeping with them. And so why does Jesus, who is God in the flesh, weep? You have to wonder if Jesus is moved at the fact that both Mary and Martha believed in the life of Jesus so much that he maybe is he hurt that they blamed him for the death of their brother? 
You know, Mary is mourning so much that Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came were also weeping. Was he just going like, everybody's crying, let's all join in together. Like, weeping is really more than just tears. It includes wailing. It includes uh, lamentation for the dead. That's what was going on culturally here. It's not this type of expression one may find, you know, with a child who stubbed their toe or an infant that needs a diaper change, you know, or somebody who just... Watch the Jets lose another hockey game, right? This is an ancient expression of mourning and grief. Mary weeps. She's accompanied by others. They're probably professional mourners who also weep alongside. And as if this isn't enough, when we see that Jesus is, you know, he begins to weep. Why? You have to ask the question, why? And he weeps as an act of solidarity with those who grieve. It's a weeping solidarity that reveals a God who enters into the fragility and suffering of human life. This time that they find themselves in, like almost any funeral, is a communal holy sorrow. And Jesus wept to demonstrate that you and I are not alone in our grief regardless of the cause. You and I are not alone in the midst of our hurt and tragedy and brokenness. That God is there, even as the Apostle Creed notes, descending into hell. God is with us at our darkest times, our loneliest places, in our anger, in our blaming, and even in our weeping. I love the fact that Psalm 56.8 says, You keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have a record. You have recorded each one in your book. God knows Think about that. You keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. God is there weeping right alongside everyone else, just as we are called in Romans 12 to weep with those who weep. To be a communion of modern-day saints through a spirituality of weeping. You remember, it was Jesus who said in Matthew 5, blessed are those who mourn. What was he saying? Happy are the heartbroken? (laughs) Glad are the grieving? Lucky are the lamenters? It doesn't matter how you spin it. It doesn't quite sound right, does it? Add to this the fact the word mourn there is actually the strongest word in the Greek language for grieving. Blessed are those that mourn. And how can Jesus connect sadness and happiness? And to begin with, let's let's be clear, Jesus is not spouting nonsense. He isn't telling us that the only way to be happy is to be miserable. Nor is he hinting that he likes to see us hurting. He's not saying, blessed are the miserable, the melancholy, the gloomy, the depressed. What he's saying is that there are times when grief can be good. When sadness actually can only be the real path to real happiness. 
God joins in the company of suffering. He opens himself up to the wounds of the world. And when God weeps, God suffers with the suffering world. Jesus wept. Jesus weeps as a sign of his love for Lazarus. And not to be in communal solid not just to be in communal solidarity with Mary and the others, but because he loved Lazarus. In his book called A Lament for a Son, in which uh, Nicholas Wolterstorff wrote regarding the tragic death of his son, his 25-year-old son, he says this, he says, if one was worth loving, one is worth grieving over. Grief is the existential testimony to the worth of the one loved. Every lament is a love song. To lament, to weep, is to love. The call to love is a call to suffer, to weep even if it endures longer than the night, right? This, this weeping love, this tearful grief that oozes with love for those who are maybe gone from this earth, whether it's a husband or a wife, a father, a mother, a son, a daughter, a grandparent, best friend, close cousin, you know, work colleague, former boss, whether it's a lost childhood or career or possibly future. When God weeps, God loves. And Jesus wept to reveal his suffering love even as he headed in the direction of the cross. Jesus began to weep as an act of solidarity with a gesture of love for the world. But his weeping was also a form of resistance to the reality of death. Jesus fights death with holy tears and anger. Because twice we learn that he's, he's disturbed. He's greatly disturbed by what's happening. I think he's angry. I think he's showing us that anger can be actually a constructive part of Christian spirituality. And he's angry at the fact of death. He's not angry with the crowd. He's not angry with the mourners. He's not angry with uh, Mary and Martha and what they had to say, but he weeps as well. He mourns with them. But he weeps angrily at death's hold on Lazarus and on us. I can't tell you how many times in my years as a pastor, I've stood at a graveside dutifully reading the words of Jesus that are meant to comfort, comfort all of us in times of mourning. But knowing that sometimes these words are only felt from a distance by many of those who are assembled at the funeral. And even while leading, let's say, a, a burial liturgy, I've I've often privately wondered why the deceased maybe had suffered so long or died so young or left us so unexpectedly. Just being honest. And I think many of us privately, we want to beat our fists against Jesus' chest and cry out, Lord, if only, just like Mary and Martha did. You know, like Mary and Martha, I think we believe, we, we actually struggle to believe the good news even when our hearts are breaking. And you know, sometimes we're able to mix our feelings of hurt with, with statements of faith as Martha did, but other times we can only express pain, right? And that's what Mary did. 
And so either way, Mary and Martha's story reminds us that we do not need to hide our grief, hide our anger from God. But we can be honest with God even if what we are feeling isn't pretty. And again, as a pastor, you know, I, I often wish I could say things that would ease the pain of people in times of grief. And I usually find myself, at, let's say, at a funeral, shaking hands with the mourners and mumbling some benediction like, you know, God be with you in your grief, or my, my normal go-to, my condolences. And I realize when I do that, my words seem so very small at that moment. But then I'm reminded of the times when God has spoken to us very powerfully through His still, small voice. Maybe through the Scripture verse or a little prayer that was memorized long ago through uh, um, Sunday school or wherever or simply through the thoughtful companionship of a faithful friend who was just present and no words to say. And I think Jesus allows us to be honest and intimate in our relationship with God and even to get angry in our times of death and loss. Jesus wept out loud at Lazarus's tomb. And, and, and it's, more, it's not just because his friend was dead, but I believe it's because of all the people who ever died. I think there was a bigger picture here. And I still think he still weeps with and for all the hurting, and he's weeping for the hungry and the sick and the suffering and the despairing and the dying. You know, if God grieved over the world in Noah's day, how much more do you think he grieves over the world today, even full of violence and abuse and war and famine and evil and injustice? You know, his grief is not evil, but good, and his grief moved him to action. Back to the story. Jesus once more moved deeply, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a large stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, by this time there is a bad odor for he's been in there for four days. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God. And so they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face, <laughs> doing the penguin. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. You know, Jesus is up to it again here, like not following our plans. He's not following protocol, right? He's not taking our advice. He's behaving in this sort of unorthodox manner, and he's moving in mysterious ways as per usual, full of surprises. And not only is the fact that Lazarus is dead, because Martha, I love it, she emphasizes the fact that, you know, she tells Jesus in her, her best King James tongue that the Lord, he stinketh, right? You know, death stinks. 
And the fact that Lazarus was there for four days indicated that his death was truly final. This was not a hoax. Lazarus was really dead. And and Jesus responds with weeping and anger with what's going on here. And the presence of death extracts tears from God. But Jesus doesn't shrink back from death. No. Why would he? Since he's already said that he is the resurrection and the life. But he confronts death straight on. He marches to the tomb. He commands that that stone be removed from the entrance. He weeps as he sees death's grip on Lazarus. He weeps because he knows that there's more to God's realm. And he yearns for more for God's creation. And so he weeps and he aches because he's confronted with the absence of life. And he weeps over death because he knows that there is life and there is freedom in God and he is the resurrection and the life. And he sees the truth about death and that it cannot overcome his life. And dead Lazarus is now alive. And the raising of Lazarus is not just about Jesus' power to raise the dead It's about his power to give new life. It's a revelation of who he is as the resurrection and the life. And in other words, God demonstrates in Jesus how he will defeat death once and for all. And when Jesus wept, he signaled that deliverance, that deliverance was about to come. And boy, did he deliver Lazarus. And not only does he raise him, he gives him a new life. He sets him free. He says, unbind him and let him go. So when God weeps, it's the beginning of the death of death. When God weeps, I think we need to watch out because new life is on the horizon. And I believe that God weeps for those of us who are dead and bound up like some sort of Christian zombie. You know, Jesus promises that he's the resurrection and the life and that through him we can have life, that we can have it more abundantly. And he will raise you and I up and he will set us free from the sting of death in our lives. But by trusting in him, he will give us this new life that's on the horizon. And when new life comes, when that promise comes, so does the promise of being unwrapped from the chains, chains of addiction, unwrapped maybe from chains of self-hatred or low self-esteem, unwrapped from suicidal thoughts and feelings of being unloved, unwrapped from the systems and structures of oppression and prejudice of any kind, unwrapped from illness and disease and discouragement, unwrapped and set free to live. And as we deal with our own grief and our own pain and guilt at our loss, we begin to see that these things can separate us from others, but also from God. And we have to go through these deep waters and we have to let go of the bad grief before we can actually enter in what I would call good grief. You know, after the pain, the guilt, the anger, then there's this awakening, there's this moment when you remember the good memories that bless and that no longer burn. A moment where we can let go of all of our bad feelings about grief and know that life goes on. A moment when the good memories can actually come and flood back into our lives again, stronger and stronger, giving us strength now to move on. But we must weep. 
And I think it's very important for us to express our grief. But then when we do that, we also allow ourselves, and we must allow ourselves to be comforted. And I think this is so important because many of us actually have a hard time of doing it. Allowing people to comfort us. Even when it feels like there is no comfort. You know, it's important to note that although Jesus raised Lazarus' body back to life, Lazarus and Mary and Martha, everybody else in the story did eventually died and ultimately faded away in history. And let's be honest, we will all die as we must. We will live, though, in the hope because Jesus gives us a courage through his own death and resurrection to die and to rise again as well. Scripture proclaims that whether we live or whether we die, we are in the presence of God, and nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And this was true for those who gathered at Lazarus' tomb, and this is true today wherever we find ourselves at this very moment. And so just remember that just as Jesus wept with Mary and Martha, Jesus weeps with you as well. And we hear Jesus saying again, I am the resurrection and the life. And we try to believe that in the midst of our hurt and grief. And that's the good news. The good news is that God and Jesus is here with us while we live. And he's there for us when we too die. So maybe you need to weep. May our weeping begin knowing that those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. I think this is the hope of all Christians, that the, the, the anchor that gives us assurance in this world uh, will not always be like it is now. Like we, we can look at the horrors around us and do what we can to change it, but we know that in the end, we know that God will transform the sinful, suffering world into the paradise he created it to be. Our comfort is the hope that we have in God's promise in a new world. Grief is the path. Comfort is the destination. Let's pray. Loving God, my prayer is that you would comfort all those who grieve today. And as we reach out or maybe we hide, I, I pray that you would hold us gently and that you would lead us, God, into your healing. Help some of us to be faithful friends and neighbors to those whose pain seems never-ending. Help us to bring uh, what we can, all of, uh, all of us at last, into that eternal place where death can never really interrupt life again through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. And God, not only do you see, see us in the midst of our brokenness, you, you weep alongside us. So help us to hear others who are calling out and who feel lost. Empower us to lean in and to lift up the needs of our community and may our enduring faith and our love for one another be a light to the world and a comfort through the trials. And those who are in their deepest moments right now, God, may they see you crying, weeping, along with them as well in the situation in which they find themselves. Amen.